I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. I think if you start with the premise that every single person you meet has some information or thought process that you don't have, and and it would be interesting to understand what that is and, and why they have it. Susan Gallagher is a CEO and president of BPI Group, a leadership and executive coaching company. She is a high energy and positive leader who has had an interesting career beginning in forensic accounting with a large accounting firm and later started a couple of companies specializing in consulting. Susan is an avid golfer and believes the game is a great place to develop client relationships. She shares a great golf story about entertaining clients at a club, which was a pivotal point in her career. Susan also tells a story with important messages about a senior associate who says something inappropriate in a meeting in which she was the only woman. Enjoy this podcast with Susan Gallagher. On this episode of Leading She, Susan Gallagher is joining me as a guest. Susan is a CEO, president of BPI Group, a leadership development organization including executive coaching, leadership acceleration, and outplacement. Susan was recruited in 2016 by BPI Group, a French company which was founded 30 years ago in France. Susan joined the global company board and was responsible for their non-French subsidiaries and a 30-country network of partners. She led the management buyout in 2020 when she bought uh, the U.S. affiliate from the French company with partners. And you are currently in a growth mode for 2020, right? We are. Yeah. So welcome. Thanks. Thanks for joining me. And I'm glad to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. A little background. Uh, Susan started her career at Arthur Anderson and was there for 22 years and rose to the level of partner and specialized in forensic accounting. This is Arthur Anderson and Arthur Anderson LLP was one of the largest public accounting firms in the 90s with more than 85,000 employees operating in, in 84 countries. And we know what happened with Arthur Anderson and Enron. I'm trying to think what year that was, 2000 or so? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so it collapsed and a lot of great people were out of jobs, but I know a lot of people landed on their feet after that. And you are one of them. So other career highlights, uh, she and 25 other partners co-founded Huron Consulting Group in 2002. In 2010, she joined True Partners Consulting as COO. And in 2013, she was named COO and Executive Vice President of Patina Solutions, an organization specializing in executive interim staffing. Susan is chair of the Board of Mercy Hospital and Health System in Chicago immediate past board chair nominating committee chair of the Chicago Network, and you do other various nonprofit activities. She has a bachelor's degree in business and accounting from St. Mary's College, uh, graduated in 1980, Notre Dame, uh, Indiana. Uh, And uh, yeah, welcome. And uh, wow, Uh, you have a very interesting career. You have a you have the skill of forensic accounting, and you're kind of in the forensic uh, people world right now. I mean, because it's a, co- a rare combination, those two things, the understanding accounting and that, the skill set there, and then understanding people and doing what you do now, right? I have had a lot of fun over my career. I bet. I can tell. I can <laughs> tell. Any highlights over what I talked about just uh, with Arthur Anderson, the French company, really started a couple of, uh, you know, companies from from nothing. You've done some buyouts. Uh, just, you know, any highlights there? Well, I think what I'm doing now really brings me full circle, right? And and learning, learning forensic accounting, learning to ask questions and really dig deep, I think is so important when it comes to people as well. And quite frankly, business is all about people, right? Mm-hmm. And uh So understanding what people need to be motivated and what they're most interested in doing and what their gifts are Mm -hmm. is really key. Mm -hmm. I think it's fascinating. And it's one of the reasons I love this podcast is because I really get to know the women I talk to. I research them. I talk to them before the the interview. And uh, it, it is fascinating. And I see you as a very curious person, which has paid off a lot in your career 
whether you're dissecting financials at an accounting company or understanding people, you just you're very curious and you're not afraid to ask questions. Right. I think the the basis is, you know, getting getting to the right goal, defining the right challenge or what you're really going after. And I think uh, that has been key. I think the my upbringing with six brothers and sisters probably drove me to never assuming I'm right, always asking a lot of questions because there are always a lot of other opinions in the room. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. I wish more people would uh, understand that, but (laughs) there are uh, collaboration is important, of course. Um, Tell me about, I'm curious about the decision to buy out the French company affiliate. You got there in 2016. Last year, you and your partners decided to buy the U.S. affiliate. Tell me how that went and what it was like to deal with bankers. You know, what did you learn there? Yeah, so it was a really interesting process. Um, and working with the French, learning French business rules and regulations and financing um, was, was really an education. And um, the company's goals and the U.S. business goals started to uh, diverge. And it was strategically made a lot of sense to for the French parent to sell the U.S. business. Um, it made a lot of sense for the U.S. business because we had growth goals that we would not be able to achieve um, getting capital uh, et cetera, with the French ownership. So we mutually agreed it would be a good idea to separate. And for we, we are still good partners, good mm-hmm. business partners, there's good people. And, you know, when there's good people, you always want to remain friends and, and continue to work together. But we decided that from a, from a business growth and uh, capital acquisition uh, strategy, we, we should be standalone. So mm-hmm. the U.S. business was global. We serve global clients and we work around the world. And uh, there was no real constraint to us going on our own. Okay. So you didn't have any non-compete issues with working with international companies that would, you know, maybe that they consider their clients or anything like that? No. No, okay. we had our own clients um, from the beginning mm-hmm. and had been growing those since 2016. And um, we're looking to continue that expansion. So mm-hmm. we wanted we wanted control of those decisions. We wanted control of our future mm-hmm. and our ability to grow and respond to the market demands. So it sounds like you reached a point, you and your partners, where you said, look, they're not giving us the capital. We need to do what we want to do here. Um and and so we need to go out on our own. And then they were saying the same thing. Was it, I've been through a few of these partnership breakups and things, and they're, they can be messy. Uh, was there, uh, I assume, there's always conflict, right? I mean, was there conflict there? Yeah, the interesting thing was, since I was on their board and understood their strategies and objectives and was running the U.S. business with my colleagues here, understood what we were trying to accomplish. It was amazingly (laughs) non-confrontational. Is there ever such a thing in business? It it was really a matter of um, moving quickly, meeting Mm -hmm. their objectives, meeting our objectives. Mm -hmm. And um, my my CFO and I were were laughing that we, we had the information from both sides. And wouldn't it be nice if all deals were done that way? Um, and it, it was very quick, and it was very smooth. Yeah. I want to get to, you know, what observations you have about the way French, the French do business versus uh, we in the U.S. But uh, tell me about, you had mentioned about the bankers. Uh, how do you, you know, how do you capitalize your own, your company with, with your own bankers here in the country? How did that go? What did you learn there? Yeah, so it was interesting. I think we spoke about the, you know, the reaching out and trying to do something new, right? Trying to do something you hadn't done before. This was a first for me. And um, really getting back to what we started talking about earlier and the importance of people and relationships and growing your career. And the fact that I could reach out to former colleagues, former board members that I knew who were bankers and ask a lot of questions. How do you do this? What's important? 
um, you know, what are the pitfalls and just get some insights from others. Um, in, and really, who were the right funding partners for us? We're a professional services firm. We want to be in the business for a long time. We're not, our, our end goal isn't to grow the business overnight and, and sell it. It's really to, to build value mm-hmm. uh, over the long haul. So, you know, getting the right partners who were interested in that sort of journey with us was important. And in, in networking, talking mm-hmm. to people, mm-hmm. getting insight from other women, really, it was a lot of women who were, who I was reaching out to, mm-hmm. uh, some of your other podcast, uh, interviewees. I see. I was about. wondering, uh, if, uh, those folks might've been involved, but did you find that the banks were receptive to your business plan and, uh, buying out the French, uh, group and, and did you have, did you have anybody turn you down? Um, we did not have anyone turn us down. This happened very, very fast. Okay. Um, the French had some time deadlines that they wanted to meet and they were looking for us to make a commitment, um, really as individuals, my CFO and I, that we were going to make this happen. So we committed to making it happen. I think it was in about a month period of time. So Mm. this was very fast. fast. And we reached out to former partners again, that that people connectivity, we, we reached out to people who knew us mm-hmm. and knew uh, what we were trying to do and had some conversations with them. And so we didn't really experience the um, exercise of meeting with hundreds of people and getting turned down by half. We uh, picked our targets well yes. and had actually a couple choices on how we would fund the business. Mm-hmm. So we were able to select partners that we thought would really help us grow and give us advice mm-hmm. that we didn't have from our own experience. Mm-hmm. And so that was last year. Has it worked out so far? Has it been good? It's been fabulous. Yeah. Cool. How many, how many employees do you have there? So we have a platform company. We have 200 employees, uh, some full-time, some part-time. We have another set of contractors that we work with. And so our workforce reaches about a thousand people. Okay. And you said platform company. What do you mean by that? So a lot of our work has to do with um, reaching out and and working with contractors, um, executive coaches, career coaches, um, facilitators or experts in different areas. And we bring those folks together to deliver our methodology and our um, vision for clients. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see. So yeah, give a couple of observations about what it's like to do business with the French versus versus doing business uh, in the US. What, what uh, are the differences? Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. I was asked to do a talk with senior level women executives in France, uh, one of the topics that they were most curious about was why do U.S. executives volunteer, serve on boards, um, do civic work? Yeah. That was for them a very unusual um, part of one's career. Hmm. And I think how I might phrase it, and there are certainly culture experts out there that would do a much better job at this than I do, but it was less of teaming, more of individual responsibility. And um, the the other interesting thing is, I think the French tend to like to debate issues. Mm. And it's almost, um, it's almost a compliment to debate an issue with you. And so, from my standpoint, you know, when things are pretty straightforward, you let them go and you move on to your next topic. But I learned that there's this engagement that's necessary mm-hmm. that brings people together and, and I think creates a meeting of the minds in an interesting way. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, it's a unique experience you have there. Uh, where did you grow up? Let's talk about your six brothers and sisters, parents, um, you know, what they did for a living and uh, 
and talk about uh, how you were taught to give back to your community, give back till it hurts, which I've done and I've used that. Uh, and so you do nonprofit work and uh, French sounds like they're pretty curious about that. But tell us a little about where you grew up and so forth. So I, I was born in Minnesota and um, grew up there, moved several times uh, when I was young, went to school in South Bend, Indiana, and then started my career here in Chicago. But I have um, six brothers and sisters. My parents were traditional in many respects. Um, mom quit work and stayed home mm -hmm. when she started had, having the family, but was always uh, we would wake up in the middle of the night to get a glass of water and we'd see her on the phone working uh, Catholic Charities hotlines and whatnot. Ah. She was um, very, very focused on always being a part of her community mm. and giving back, despite the fact that she had a bunch of us kids running around. But yeah. it, was, it was a pretty traditional upbringing. Uh, my father worked for the uh, airlines and for the FAA. Um, and so we had interesting insights into some of the deregulation of the airline industry as mm. that was going through. But um, he was he was a pretty quiet man and his first uh, few kids were very strong women. And so it uh, it was it was an interesting but rather traditional upbringing. Mm. I think we talked about the fact that we were um, we kind of had that sense of family meals. You were always home for the, for the family meal. And there was a great mm -hmm. check-in with each other mm -hmm. on what, what was going on in everybody's lives. And we carried that through to, uh, to our family when my husband and I had our four children that we would stick to those family meals as mm -hmm. much as possible. Yeah. I'd like to talk about that. Um, you have a pretty demanding career and uh, four children, and you had, a, am sure, a spouse that was there doing his part. And uh, you did make a point, even though no matter where, where you were in your career, what was going on, that you would leave around 5 o'clock every day. And one of your male associates uh, said something to you. Uh, what's your philosophy there? What did he say? Yeah, so... You know, it didn't work all the time. You're, you're yeah. certainly plenty of business trips and night meals, but my husband and I were pretty committed to to getting home and and figuring out how the day had gone for the for the kids. Yeah. Um, but yeah, one time I was walking out the door um, at at about five, and uh, one of my partners looks at his watch very demonstratively and says, "Gallagher, what is this half day?" You know, and. It, and announced it really to this bullpen of, of people, which mm -hmm. was where you sat in those days. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I could have been mortified, which is your original sort of natural fight or flight reaction to something like that. But I, I had learned, I had trained early on to not take or react to your original response or reaction to uh, to control those sort of natural impulses, impulses, impulses yes, uh -huh. right, mm -hmm. and really think about what I needed to have happen, where I wanted this to go, and respond accordingly. Um, and I I think you know if I had succumbed to that kind of pressure. Uh, I probably wouldn't have stayed at Anderson as long as as I did. I think I contributed significantly to the firm, but they certainly contributed to me. So it was important for me um, to stay there and build my career and and learn all that I did learn there. Um, mm -hmm. so, so what did it, you say to him? What? It, how did you? My response was, "Well, if I if, if the guy's name was Dave, well, Dave, if you can't get your work done <laughs> in a work day, that is not my issue." So I kind of. <laughs> pushed it back to him. It was a little gutsy because he was a partner. Yeah. But I, um, you know, I just tried to stay very focused on what I needed to have happen. The image I wanted to portray under control, making a choice and moving toward my goals. That was quick. And that was the really the perfect response, which is like, well, you know, look, I've I'm done with my work. I get it all done in the nine hours I was here or whatever. And and so and he did it in, and he had an audience. A lot of these guys like to have an audience, right? When they're saying things to you. Always. Yeah. 
Isn't that the case? <laughs> that is true. Like they wouldn't say it to you one-on-one, right? Uh, probably not. But but he's got an audience. He probably felt safe and he's like is thinking, hey, we're all the guys are still here working. Where are you going? Right. And you said, Oh, I love I love the comeback. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, I think I trained early on in my career under a guy named Dr. Robert Cooper, and he has this work on hacking the human brain. And it's really all about, you know, we have these natural reactions. And if you really stay very, very focused on what is the real goal, what, you know, not, not what am I doing internally, but where do I need to take this and what is the real goal and how do we accomplish that goal Mm -hmm. or objective, I think um, has really served me well over my career. Sure. I mean, you didn't get defensive. You didn't feel, you might've felt criticized, but you know, you didn't, uh, you didn't take that on. You knew that you were committed to getting home and having dinner with your family. And that was a goal and you got all your work done. And frankly, I'm a multitasker which I know a lot of women are, and uh, it's a stereotype. Uh, I get a lot done in eight hours. I get a lot done. I'm very focused. I get it done. And then I'm tired. You know, I I can't work 12 and 14-hour days. I've done it. uh, But I get a lot done in the time I have, and I'm pretty efficient. So, you know, I can, you know, I will leave early now and know that I've gotten everything done. And don't you find that you work well at different points during the day? You read differently at certain times. You write differently at certain times. I've noticed you schedule these podcasts at very at set schedule. And I think that brings out the best in you. Your yes. personal genius yeah. comes to fold when you're allowed to do it when it works best for you. Right. And it's it's having the self-awareness that I'm a morning person. I haven't always been a morning person, but if we were to do this podcast at 4.30 in the afternoon, I would be a different person because I would be tired and not as focused and not as clear. And I need to be that way to, <laughs> to keep up with you ladies. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it is interesting, but the more we know ourselves and yeah. the better we can work with that. So, you know, in my career, I, it sounds like yours too. It's never been about give me a policy that'll allow me to do this or tell me how to do this. It was much more about this is how I want to make this work. This is how what will work best for me. And then the challenge when you start leading others is how do you allow that flexibility as your workforce grows? How do you stay so focused on each individual and allowing them? And their genius to to flower while, you know, still managing and controlling and and getting the the organization moving in a a given direction. It's a delicate balance. And I've done it. And I haven't always done that well. It's kind of like, you know, dress code or when you're in the office. Those were pretty strict for me for a while, having come from a banking lending background. But I realized I had to really be, you know, be open to what what other what the staff wanted to do and the more freedom and liber how liberating it is and the more mastery they have over their schedules and work the happier they are you know yeah and 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 produces an entirely different result mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. the company or the division Yes. Mm-hmm. When you were with, uh, one question I had, when you were with Arthur Anderson, you were challenged to change the perception of Arthur Anderson's support of women in business, and you helped create a seminar, which was very popular, called Women in Business Politics and Power. Uh, talk about it. Talk about why it was popular, so popular. I think you had two of them, at least two, and you were charged with helping change the perception. I guess, what was the perception? How did this all go? Yeah, so, you know, late 80s, um, there was really a war for talent, right? If you remember those mm-hmm. the, that language, and we're probably going to get there again soon, but um, businesses needed more people. And so, therefore, needed to recruit more women and really have a positive, it was kind of the first time organizations were trying to look attractive to all their talent, but women in particular. And uh, there was some competition on, you know, we are the best place for women to grow their careers. 
And the big four at the time were all very interested in this and and trying to promote and attract the best talent. Mm -hmm. And so um, Anderson had was pretty good with women. And we had a a uh, grow initiative, growth and retention of women where where we had voices in the organization and we were able to participate fully in the organization. It obviously grew with time, but um, we really wanted an external um, view. And I was asked to think about this and potentially do something about it. Um, I was talking with some of our clients and some of our other partners, and we decided that we would really like a public conversation on power. Mm. And at the time, and even today, I think sometimes wielding power is not seen as feminine or a good thing to do. And certainly we all know there's different elements of that, but yes. the political world at the time was ahead of the business world. Mm -hmm. There were women political leaders and they were certainly wielding power. And so we wanted to learn from them. So a group of us got together and we thought, okay, let's bring in these speakers. Let's talk about what that takes. And we had some fantastic conversations, some really interesting opening up of what that was all about. And, and um, it, it was fantastic. It was a little scary for some of our male partners. Um, they were not so sure we were not reaching a little too high, being a little too public. Uh, but in fact, it was a wild success. Um, why were they? Why were they scared? Uh, it's kind of like we've got it, and you can't have it. <laughs> well, you know, we designed this so that everybody was participating, right? We had lots of companies, lots of corporations, lots of clients uh, participating, and um, I think it was a fear of: is it too far, women? Pro women? Is it too far? feminist uh, for for all of our male clients and for our image and our reputation. I see. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it was so visible and so public. What if you failed? I don't know what failure would have looked like in that scenario, mm -hmm. but what if you failed? And I just, I never saw the world from that perspective. I never think about what if I fail? You know, your my attention and energy is on how you make this successful. Mm -hmm. And who all needs to be involved and asking enough questions to make sure you've got things, things covered. But it ended up being just a ton of fun and a lot of success. And so we did it again a second year. And then the, after that second year, we decided that, hey, we've, we've sort of answered this question and we would need to come up with a new question or, or new thinking on, on it, you know, what we would do if we did it again. And we were holding these in September. And that next year, the first year that we didn't hold it was actually 9-11. Oh. So. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. We knew what we, happened we, there. We never, after that, we, we never got back to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You are a golfer like me. You took it up. And uh, you have a story about uh, entertaining clients. I'd like you to talk about that and taking the clients to the club and what happened there. But uh, we, we agree in that uh, golf can be a great place to host clients. And uh, um, I've always been an athlete and I love golf and uh, I'm not like great. People think I'm great because I play a lot, but I'm not. <laughs> yeah. So it's a great uh, relationship builder. So talk about golf and what happened at the club. Yeah. So it, it's a great game, right? It's just great to be outside and with others. And um, so I, I learned how to golf late in life. So I, you and I would probably make great golf partners. Probably I and, did too. Uh, so, but it, you know, young in, in your career, um, you're always a little fearful of going out on a golf course with men who you presume are much better than you are right, right. when that may not be the case. It's a big it's presumption. kind of all in, in how we talk about it, right? In right, our, right. In how they talk about how good they are, right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, 
at any rate, I noticed that a lot of our partners would go out golfing. And really at that point in time, 80s, 90s, you know, there there were fewer women in the workforce, as I'm sure you would attest to. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, and so the the need to get to know clients, the need to get to know other business executives and continue to develop my career and my network and um, learning, right? Because that's that's kind of how I learned throughout my career, watching others and absorbing and asking questions from others. And so um, I decided I needed to understand this game of golf and, and get out on the course. So um, another woman who was a client of mine and her husband and a business partner of his went golfing one day at very prestigious club on the North shore of Chicago. And we walked in and the only other foursome in the room were four of my partners who were much senior to me, ran our office in, in our, uh, in our firm. And the looks on their face, <laughs> me walking in was just very, you know, super curiosity. Like what is she doing here? And who are these people she's with? Yeah. And it was quite fun because the husband of my client, who was a big business executive in town, uh, and and his guest was also a big business executive, had could see this. I mean, it was just sort of blatant on their faces walked over and just really played it up and said, Hey, I'm here with Susie and I, I'd like to introduce myself. And, you know, so the, so the whole day went on like that, but I think it was a pivotal point in my career. I think it was a point where um, these partners were able to look at me differently and were able to look at me as this could work. This could happen. You know, kind of a player. You're, you're a player. You're in there. You're, you're getting it done and, um, you're with clients. And so I, I would, if I'd be, if I were you, I'd just really love that moment and just kind of strut here. Here are my clients. I know you guys are here, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it was kind of funny, but looking back, you know, you're, you kind of think there are these pivotal moments in, in your career where without, using words, you're sort of demonstrating that this can work mm-hmm. and all is fine. And you're not and afraid. You're not intimidated to be out, right? right? I think that was maybe a message or something they saw, I'm guessing. I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. And then, you know, you get to play the game of golf and be outside for the day and and doing the work that sometimes you end up doing on a golf mm-hmm. course. Yeah. Um, you have a, an interesting story uh, and I want you to talk about it because I think it could be helpful to listeners. And that is early in your career, uh, it was you, your boss, and a meeting a group of all men in a, I guess, in a conference room. And one of the men uh, said something quite vulgar. And I believe the room went pretty quiet when he said it. You were the only woman in the room. Uh, the room went quiet. Everyone seemed to be very, uh, you know, embarrassed. And then talk about what happened there after and what, you know, what you would advise women to do today or what you wish you would have done or didn't do. You know what I mean? Just talk about yeah. that story. Yeah. And so those situations continue to arise, right? And where um, you're you're put in situations that feel very uncomfortable and your choice is to stand up and address it boldly and directly. Or in this case, my example and what I have typically done throughout my career, again, is recenter on what's the goal. What's the goal and what do I need to have happen um, today? And it's usually not a long-term issue, but to, to move forward. So in that situation, um, I had convinced my boss to bring me to this meeting, mostly seen people senior to me, so I could hear what was going on, so I could learn um, from the dialogue and the exercise, how decisions were made, who our partners were, and, and what their vantage points were. And so then when this guy gives this illustrious example using these horrible, vulgar examples and terms um, 
female-oriented, if I can say that. I think I'm guessing. Uh, <laughs> and and um, the whole room fell silent, heads dropped, faces bright red. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I could say, well, that was a stupid thing to say because it wasn't a good example of what you were trying to illustrate. Or that would be calling attention to him. That would be calling attention to the fact that I was embarrassed or out of place. And I didn't want people to think I was out of place. I didn't want not to go to these meetings in the future. And so I picked up the conversation and drove it back to the business topic that were that we were discussing. And at that time, what right or wrong, I didn't address it. I didn't bring it up. Just ignored I just, it. Yeah, I just ignored mm-hmm. it and got us yeah. back to business. Mm-hmm. I was trying, I think, to to illustrate that I couldn't be flustered and yes. that, you know, that I was in control of the business topic at hand. Afterwards, though, um, there was some discussion with my closest colleagues that were mm-hmm. there and my boss. And, you know, they, they, they said, oh, my gosh, we just can't believe this happened. And my conversation with them was about, you know, I don't really care about that comment. What I care about is you not taking me to future meetings because you don't want to be embarrassed like that again. Right. So put that aside and don't let that, you know, force you to not involve me in business because you don't want to be embarrassed because that's not the issue. That's right. right. That's right. For me to do my best work. I need to be here. I need mm-hmm. to help grow. And that advantages the company. So for me, I think that was also a fairly pivotal point mm-hmm. in my career where people knew what I was about and and involved me in future meetings and mm-hmm. future work. Yeah, another example of you doing probably the exact right thing, which is ignoring it, letting it go, and then moving on, having the presence of minor poise to continue on the business discussion and ignore his vulgar, you know, language or whatever in terms of how, what he said. Yeah. And then maybe to put them at ease too, like the other guys, like, hey, you didn't offend her. She's going on and kind of, kind of lightened it up. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think there, you know, over the years, we've all talked about this, right? Because women get put in these situations, you get talked over in a meeting. Yes. Or you, you, you know, People call you out constantly. Oh, I'd say this, but there's a woman in the room, or I'd yes. do this, but there's, you know, and you, and it's in it, all these things. If we're in our head, if we're a human, you're reacting like I don't belong here. Um, I'm embarrassed. I just want to crawl under a, a rock, right. or I want to get out of here. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of your natural reaction, and you have a lot of choices on how you handle those things. And and sometimes the right thing to do is call it out. Yeah. But sometimes the right thing to do is just continue to move toward what you want to make happen. Mm-hmm. And if you can, if you can control your, your reaction and your thought process and your, you know, that old fight or flight mentality and just break that down so that you're thinking about, goal, objective, how do I get there? Mm-hmm. I think it helps. Yeah, this goes on. It's gone on fairly recently with me. I was at a production event, and I was at a table of all men, and one of the guys said, well, I can't really tell you the story or say that because there's a woman sitting here among us. And today. Some, yeah, today. Yeah. And sometimes those guys are saying it for the benefit of how the, those the other guys will look at him. Um, but for me, even after, as as a veteran in the industry and been at this a while, it still kind of singles me out. Like, here's a woman, you know, I can't do this because she's here, you know. And, and in your situation, the fellow that used the vulgar language, I have to believe that there was a hostility there. Sometimes I see it as real hostility where someone is almost almost uh, want to stay in the locker room mentality, kind of like, okay, it's, it's it's us guys. It's like, oh, no, there's a woman here. But he said it anyway. He knew you were there. And then it, and the guys were embarrassed. And then what a shame if your boss had decided you can't come back to those meetings because he says those things. 
and uh, you're left out of the meeting because of the way this guy behaved. Yeah, and I and I think that happens. I it, mm-hmm. it certainly used to, and a lot. Yeah, it did. And and uh, and and that doesn't help anybody's career. Right. No, you have to do what I think you did, and and let your boss know. Look, I'm I'm coming back. You're not going to leave me out of those meetings because that that jerk just said that. You know. Uh, so and I'm I have to believe that off the record some guys talk to him like hey you can't you can't be talking like that in a meeting you know when there're women in there or even other men it's offensive you know it's probably so and yeah, it's not, I don't think it's it not added, done today I don't think it added to anybody's you know understanding of the situation or conversation no, going forward No he's right. being totally bro culture You have four children uh who are all adults uh three daughters and a son as I understand it Right. Yes. Couple or they're of, at least adulting, right? They're they adulting. They're getting there. Okay. <laughs> All right. Step at a time. Sometimes they revert back to teenagers. I know that. Uh, and a couple of engineers in there. Um, what do you think they learned from you and your husband and, you know, maybe having dinners at, you know, at night, uh, your careers, how you got it all together and made it all happen? What do you think uh, they gained from seeing you and your husband do this? Yeah, I think. Uh, Hopefully, you know, a, a good work ethic. Um, hopefully, um, that work can be fun. You know, you, we're not we're not working. It, of course, you're working for the paycheck, but you we're not really working for the paycheck. There's a lot of things you could do, right? So the goal in life is find something you just are passionate at, at about, and that makes you better at it. Mm-hmm. I firmly believe, but it's also a lot more fun. And um, yeah, so I've got an industrial engineer, a packaging engineer, an accountant, and a data analytics who mm-hmm. was applied behavioral sciences in, in school. And, and interesting enough, that's the, the people in the data kind of connection that we talked about earlier. But it is so fun these days to, to watch them work. Um, I, I, I think that they're learning that they're able to achieve anything they want to, if they're willing to work hard enough to get there and Mm -hmm. which is the way we were both raised. Right. Um, And so it's, uh, it's fun to see. And I, and I do learn from them now um, and, and talk about, you know, what would you guys want to hear on a podcast, you know, about <laughs> career advice? And, uh, so it, it, is, uh, it is fun. I think they also gained a tremendous amount of independence. I mean, we always hear about, or earlier, I think there's less of it now, but how difficult it is, you know, to be a, a working mom. And um, it, through my years, that was the conversation. And for me, it was so darn fun and it and it was so interesting to hear their perspectives on things um but they they gain independence and they gain control of their own lives and they understand that you know they can accomplish things if they try hard and it's not going to be handed to them yeah and i, I think that's good yeah yeah have to believe they're good kids and your daughters are definitely uh part of the target audience here for the podcast <laughs> Yes. And actually, they've gone on and listened to a number of the podcasts that you've good. shared and are so appreciative of the work you're doing. Good. They're very good. Good. Thank you. I'm, I love hearing that. I love hearing it. Uh, your organization uh, does coaching, kind of advising uh, women, as I understand it. What advice would you give to a woman today, maybe just starting out or in her 20s, 30s? Um, or maybe somebody in middle management about just uh, what to think about. I know it's probably a long list, and there's a lot involved complex coaching. But you know, you talked about mentorship versus sponsorship. You know, people sponsoring you. And what what advice would you give? Where where do you go when you coach? So our business has three tiers: executive coaching, leadership acceleration, and uh, career transition or career coaching. Okay. And uh, all of them have an element of personal development involved, right? At different levels in your career or at, at different points, at different focuses, uh, different goals. 
And so all of them start with understanding yourself, what motivates you, what you're good at, what, what drives your energy. You know, anybody can look at their day and say, what are the things I just wake up? Hey, oh, I got to do this today. And what are those things that you wake up and you're like, wow, I'm going to tackle this today. Yeah. And this is going to really drive my energy. So understand those. You got to do a little bit of both throughout your career, but make sure there's a balance, right? And if you need, if you need to exercise, run, yoga, whatever to get your system going, do that. Schedule it in, put it on your calendar. And as we talked about a little bit earlier, understand how your energy flows throughout the day. When are you thinking best? When are you writing best? When are you acting best? And so I think those are all really important, but awareness of yourself is where it all begins. And then something we haven't talked about is building relationships. Mm. I mean, the world turns on relationships and who you know, who you can help, ultimately who you might reach out to for advice and help. Getting on boards early on was so important in my career to understand Mm -hmm. how different people address different things. I mean, clearly in our country today, there's a lot of different perspectives on how to accomplish really the same objective, Mm -hmm. living in a community and in a nation where we're all thriving, right? Mm -hmm. And so same thing happens in a microcosm in your business. There's different ideas. And so to be able to have relationships deep enough to talk to people about that and understand how should we tackle this? How can we go about this? What all is going to interfere? What's going to accelerate that progress? I think all those things are really important. So a a young person, I think today, you know, build relationships with people, be curious about Mm -hmm. other people, what their point of view is, Mm -hmm. what informs that. Yeah. You mentioned something, something early on, which is something I did in my career especially when I was new and one of the youngest people is I observed a lot. I watched what people did. I watched how they behaved, conducted themselves in meetings, and I imitated what I wanted to imitate. And I didn't, you know, the things I thought, eh, it's not really working. So I was really a sponge, you know, during that time. And to address your networking thing, I think some people think networking is kind of like how big is your contact list uh, mm-hmm. How many cards do you hand out at a at a meeting and shake hands? That's not it. It is really, you know, who do I know that I might be able to help and may benefit my business, may benefit me, and get to know them, develop a relationship with them. And that's what these women in my podcast have done for many years, almost without exception. They know how to they know how to build relationships that that have helped them in their careers, and then they help those people. Yeah, it, it's so clear. It's clear in your career. I mean, the the value and, and networking is kind of, I mean, we try and um, teach classes on it now. We try and uh, write books about it and categorize it. Um, it should be a very natural process. But I, I do think, and, and a natural level of curiosity, I think if you start with the premise that every single person you meet has some information or thought process that you don't have. And, and it's would be interesting to understand what that is and, and why they have it. Mm-hmm. And, and if you, if you start with that, it's, it's really not about collecting cards, as you say, mm-hmm. and, and it's not about numbers. I do think though, the other advice I would, I would give people is what does happen naturally is you tend to uh, be around and build relationships with people that are similar to you. It's easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're running around in the same circles typically. Mm-hmm. So I do think there should be some thought around um, who's who's in my sphere, who's influencing my career. And do we all speak the same language? Mm-hmm. Are we all the same age? You know, the answers to those questions should be no, or you should go out and make sure you've got people of different ages that you're interacting with, people who are different religions, Mm -hmm. certainly different gender, different race, different, you know, backgrounds altogether, so that you have interesting information coming in and you can be informative and give information out. Mm -hmm. And I think that that whole sphere 
that element of building relationships probably should have some thought behind it and not just be natural. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some really focused targeting um, uh, diversity and inclusion in your in your network, uh, diversity and inclusion in your in your relationships, not just uh, people that are like you, uh, but so you can. I think it's just healthy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And just and uh, becomes valuable at this point in your career, my career, you know, you, you can look back and see how valuable those yes. differences of opinion were mm-hmm. at different points in time. And Definitely. you don't know when, right? Yeah. You don't know when it just yeah. happens. Definitely. And then just, we talked about mentorship and sponsorship, just spend a couple of minutes talking about the difference and how you think having a mentor, having a sponsor is uh, important to careers? Yeah. So the the group of professionals that we acquired last year have some really deep research on um, how to build pipelines and bring people through. And it's an element of inclusion in the workforce. So um, part of that piece of that puzzle to make that work within organizations is to have a sponsor. And that sponsor is someone who actually advocates for you, who introduces you to new opportunities within that organization or outside the organization where you can grow. It's someone who understands what you're good at and where you want to go, what additional experience you need to get there. And really pulls you through that organization. Um, But these are always two-way streets, right? If you've got a really good sponsor, you're doing great work, and that sponsor wants you in their organization and wants you to be successful because of the value you're bringing to Mm -hmm. the organization. Mm -hmm. So the difference is we have a lot of mentors, and for a long time we talked about mentors, and mentors are very, very important. Mentors, I think, in my experience, have been useful in different points of your career, in observing them. It is also a two-way street, but getting some specific advice. Mentor doesn't have to be inside your organization. Sometimes they are. And, um, but but the, that sponsor is really a person who's sitting in a position of power mm-hmm. who can pull you through right. the organization. Who has the clout and, and knows you're interested in uh, advancing and being promoted and has... You have a career track and they're supportive of you. They're an advocate. Right. Yeah. Right. Good advice. Susan, thanks for joining me today. I have had a wonderful time. Good. Thank you for this conversation. <laughs> Good. Well, I'll let you know when it comes out. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders.